When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we've got one of our regulars back. We're talking bird dogs and double guns with Greg Elliott of DogsAndDoubles.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 134. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your subscription to Onyx Hunt. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store today. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. If you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. And by CZ USA. Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White Sharp Tail Side by Sides to the Wing Shooter Elite and Upland Ultralight Over and Unders, and the soon to be Project Upland CZ USA crowdsource shotgun debuting very soon. CZ USA, they've got pumps, they've got semi autos. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. Learn more and find your next bird hunting gun at cz-usa.com. And by Electronic Shooters Protection. Custom molded, custom fit hearing protection lets you hear everything that you want to hear and blocks out everything that you don't. Learn more and get yourself a pair at espamerica.com. And by Sage and Breaker. 
makers of gun cleaning products that protect legacies. The legacy of your firearm, the legacy of the sport, and the legacy of passing both down to future generations. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible, and they are proud to pass that caliber of craftsmanship on to you. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Unparalleled protection, one-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, Everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. And just released this week, our latest film, which takes you to South Dakota to Greg Cronkite's farm as he shares with us the story of Dakota 283. Head over to projectupland.com, check that out, and find your next kennel at dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Josh G from Canada. Josh left us a review for the podcast. He also sent me an email, told me about some of his bird hunting adventures. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. Project Upland t-shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app. You can subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion or a bird hunting story. I'd love to hear from my listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, it's still February, and with that comes another reminder for a limited-time sale. One of our partners on the podcast, Gumleaf USA. If you're in the market for rubber boots, head over to gumleafusa.com. Check out their selection of in-stock boots, and you can use the promo code HARTLEY. That's H-A-R-T-L-E-Y, promo code HARTLEY, to save 25% on any pair of boots in stock from gumleafusa.com through the end of February. Go check them out before they're gone, gumleafusa.com. And that brings us to our episode today, a former repeat guest of the podcast, one of my favorite people to speak with, especially this time of year. My mind inevitably turns to shotguns. And when it comes to shotguns, Greg Elliott is a wealth of knowledge. For that reason, we welcomed him back to the Project Upland podcast to dive a little bit deeper into the world of shotguns, catch up on what Greg has been up to, talked about a little bit about his bird dogs, and then we transition into our conversation about shotguns. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of dogsanddoubles.com, Greg Elliott. I'm ready to go, Greg. All right, cool. I'm ready to go. Let me put you here so it's not too weird. I'm, it's strange to talk and not see the person you're talking to, so I have to get oh, my yeah, laptop yeah. in the right place. I like the artwork behind you there. Oh, yeah, That's thanks. Yeah. Field and stream covers, rough grouse stuff. Yeah, grouse, race cars, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Perfect. Welcome back to the Project Up and Podcast, man. Hey, Greg thanks. Elliott of Dogs and Devils. How are you? Good. I'm doing great. Doing great. Good to be back. Yeah. How long have you guys been doing this podcast now? Um, since September of 2017. So wow. we are... We are well into year, I guess it'll be four years this fall, so we're we're in year three. Wow. Pretty crazy. Yep, it's, uh, I, I don't recall exactly the last time we had you on, probably a couple of years ago. We had you on early, we did a two-part episode, and then I brought you back another time to talk about uh, the Fox guns, and now it's been a while. Yeah, well, we did the greeny thing. Oh, you're right, and that's why I was I was going to get to that because it was roughly a year ago. The last time I saw you, we were down in Texas, and yeah, we did the podcast with Caesar Greeny. But yeah. I'm sure that it feels this way to you. Everything that happened about a year ago feels like it was ten years yeah, ago, I just know. because of yeah. everything that happened last year. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it was almost like it was. So it was the weekend of the Super Bowl last year. Yes. Yep. We watched the Super Bowl yeah, in we Texas. The Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that I mean, how long ago down, does that yeah. truly feel? <laughs> Well, what have you been up to, man? 
What's been keeping you busy? So the same old stuff, you know, uh, so doing the dogs and doubles of writing the blog, you know, on Instagram, everything under dogs and doubles. Uh, yep. I've been, you know, wrote some stuff for Project Upland magazine. I think I had some articles in Shooting Sportsman in 2020. Um, what else? You know, chasing guns. And uh, yeah. so I was last year, you know, I was working my dogs, getting ready for the fall, you know, getting ready for the hunting season. Um, and then after the hunting season, I lost both my dogs, had to put them both down. So, yeah, that was sort of the big shocking thing that happened in 2020. But other yeah. than that, everything else was kind of kind of what I always do, you know, look for guns, train my dogs, look for places to go hunting. So, And write about guns. Yeah, and write about everything, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man, well, uh, you brought it up, and certainly I follow you on Instagram, and we keep in touch, and we talked about a week ago, and obviously you had to do the hardest thing a bird dog owner has to do and you, you lost two dogs and it was sooner than than you should have lost them too so i obviously can't imagine what that would have been like at the end of 2020 of all things i mean unbelievable man yeah yeah it was really brutal yeah we the first one um so lexi my older one it was six and a half uh she had cancer and she hunted so i hunted the last two weeks of october i hunted those full two weeks and she hunted a lot and pretty much right up until the last day, she was fine. You know, she she was showing signs of being tired, but uh, you know, but I had hunted her quite a bit, uh, so I just assumed that she was just tired from hunting. She hunted really well the last day. Um, the last day was November first, and then on November fourteenth, and then she. I, so anyway, I got her home, and she wasn't eating well, and she was definitely yeah. lethargic, and she started losing weight. And then on November fourteenth, she was doing really poorly. I brought her into the vet. She was diagnosed with cancer on the 14th, and then on the 18th, we had to put her down. So she went yeah. downhill, you know, within basically two and a half weeks. She went from hunting and not showing any signs of being sick to, you know, having to be let go. So so that was pretty shocking. And then the other one had an, had an issue and uh, about a month later, and so she was four and a half. Oh, she was almost five. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was pretty rough. You know, those were... Those were my hunting dogs, and I, you know, had them since they were pups, and you know, yeah. they were both. Lexi was really well trained. You know, she had won field trials and stuff. She'd done really well. So, about the worst thing that could happen, man. I certainly, I, I don't yeah. mean to drag you through it. I don't know if it helps or hurts to talk about it or anything, but I certainly didn't want to, didn't want to ignore it. And no, I, I appreciate I that. Yeah, no, it's it's brutal. Yeah, I mean, especially when it's not expect, it's, it's unexpected. Now, if the dogs, right. I had another dog that I had put down. But she was like 11 and a half. So and when they're older, it's easier. I mean, it's still, she had cancer and uh, yeah, it was still unexpected. But when they're younger, it's just, especially Lexi was in her prime and she hunted extremely well throughout October. And uh, yeah, so. But yeah. the good news is we have a puppy, another puppy coming next week. So we'll get back I was in just and bring start that all up. over again. <laughs> so. Yeah. Tell me about the new pup a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So another pointer. Um, this one's coming from a breeder in Oklahoma. My other dogs are from a breeder in Wisconsin, but they're still, uh, my other ones were very LHU, what you call LHU bred pointers, very LHU. Okay. Uh, these, this one that's coming is a little, um, she's probably more like 80% LHU, 75. So she's a little less LHU and okay. she'll probably be a, what I call a little hotter dog. So she'll probably be a little, run a little bit more in the woods, maybe a little further. So she's got some, some of the blood she's got in her is a little more, uh, 
like all age field trial dogs. So she'll be a little hotter, but not too much. But other than that, she's still uh, she's still a lot like she'll be like a what I call like a cover dog English pointer. You know, a little smaller. They're not as big as the all age dogs. Okay. But yeah, she's coming from Oklahoma. She's the uh, the person that's bringing her to us is uh, the dogs in the car right now. They're driving her out. So. Oh really? Yeah. Is she so? Is she arriving this weekend? She's arriving next week. So they picked her up next week. She's in okay. o- The dog is in Oklahoma. They picked her up yesterday. No, they picked her up on the tenth. Yeah, today's Friday, right? Yes. Yeah. A couple um, days ago. Yep. Yeah, they picked her up on the tenth, uh, and the weather has been really bad out there. Uh, uh, yeah. and so they've been held up and so they're driving this it's a it's what's called a dog hauling service and yeah, we, i yeah, told you about gotta, this you gotta yeah, tell yeah. us about this yeah but but for the listeners it's interesting yeah so there's this woman who has uh, i think it's the the company's called buckeye dog haulers and they basically transport dogs around um from the east around the eastern half of the united states basically I mean, okay. they have a couple different drivers. I mean, this is what I've been able to figure out from sort of talking to them. They have a couple different drivers who go out and pick up dogs, and then they have like a centralized hub that people bring the dog. That these some drivers bring the dogs to the hubs, and then other drivers deliver them to other places. Anyway, the, our dog's supposed to be here Tuesday and next week, so this dog's going to go from Oklahoma to Boston. Um, they're going to drive it out this time of year. Flying a dog is hard to do because it's so cold. Yeah, um, you know, sometimes the airlines won't do it because it's take too them, cold. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing with COVID and all that stuff going on, it's just I didn't want to deal with airports. Yeah. Um, and it was too far for me to drive out and get her. So, uh, yeah, the dog hauling thing is a great option. I know we talked about this before. The, so something the, these people also do is they, they do a lot of picking up puppies and transporting dogs to new owners. But they also, like, if they also move dogs around for guys that are looking to go places and go hunting. So. Yeah. They will, like, so if you want to go hunting in Oklahoma, you could have these people pick your dog up, transport it out to some place where you're going where they can drop it off, and then you could fly out, hunt, and then have them pick the dog back up and bring it back. Um, You know, you want to do something like that with an older dog that's more, you know, used to traveling and stuff. But people do that. I know guys that do that. I know people who have dogs, you know, they'll go, they want to go hunting out west for a week, uh, but they don't want to spend four or five days driving. Uh, mm-hmm. They can, or they have one guy that's going to go out and he's going to bring all the gear and they're going to meet him and something like that. But it's not, these these dog haulers just make it a lot easier to move yeah. your dog around. And everyone, I, the people I talked to about this uh, this place, Buckeye, said that they were you know really reputable and trustworthy and they took really good care of the dog. So they sent me pictures yeah. of a, our new puppy on the road, and so she awesome. looks like she's like <laughs> having a good time. So. What's the? Uh, did they tell you like what's the transport situation? She's in a crate. In, yeah, so she's a in a crate. Yeah. She's in the crate. Yeah. It looks like she's in the back of like a uh, a caravan. You know, like a, okay. a minivan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Climate and, controlled. Yeah, yeah. So she's in a confined. <laughs> she's in a space that has climate yep. control. She's not like uh, in a dog box in the back of a pickup truck. Right. You know. Right. Would you know? Especially with a puppy, that's really you know taking a puppy and throwing it in a dog box by herself. A dog, a dark yeah. box would be bad. Um, but yeah. she's in like the bed of like a minivan, and then there's a bunch of other puppies that are in there mm-hmm. uh, in different yep. crates, and they're all kind of stacked together. And you can see they're all kind of keeping each other company. So it's not that's sort of the, the biggest fear is that it's going to just be a really freaky experience, uh, right. really scare right. the dog. But I, you know, people I talked to about this said it wasn't they didn't have concerns about that because they've done it before, and you have that same concern if you put them on a plane, you know. Because you sure. don't know what they're yeah. going to do. I've I've flown dogs a couple times. 
I've never had an issue, but uh, it's definitely that thought's always in your head. So yeah, you never know where yeah, you put them. I, I just at the surface level, you would think that a pup in a van full of other dogs. I mean, I, that that could help, right? Like you might yeah. still have the have the pup that gets anxiety or whatever. But if they're around other dogs and they got a person there letting them out, I mean, as opposed to an airplane, yeah, they stop and but, let them out. Yeah, and the only thing, yeah. the only benefit to the airline is it's over quicker. Sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. Happens faster. Yeah. But, uh, well, man, yeah. given the timing and everything, it's probably a good thing you went with this route because I would imagine the airlines probably aren't flying dogs just with how cold it is right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't it's know. If, I don't know what week. they're doing. Yeah, but that's definitely yeah. the, it. Can be too cold and it can be too hot. Those are like yeah. the two. So I, the, when I've had dogs flown out, they've come out in like April and May. That's like the little window. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think now it's too. They, I think a lot of times they put the dogs in the hold. They don't put them up on, you know, they're not up in the cabin. Right. Uh, yep. So, yeah, it can be a little too, I imagine now it can be a little too cold in that hold. But uh, Yeah, yeah. But. Well, it's an interesting, I, I had I had heard a mention of it, and I don't know if it was somebody getting a pup or I'd heard of a similar service. And now that you mention it, it's something unique. You know, people are definitely getting puppies from places that they don't live at, so it's a, it's a good idea. And I would imagine with the ease of connecting you know they can run this sort of small scale business and yeah. take advantage of some of that. Yeah, um, running dogs around it's pretty. It's a neat option for people, I guess. Yeah, it's a great option. Yeah, it was either that or I was going to have to drive to Oklahoma. So. All right. Have you ever flown a dog? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. And was it a nightmare? Or no, it was so super bad? easy. It was super okay. easy. It's but again, you have to have that window and a lot yeah. of. So before it's gotten harder to do. Basically, the, the airlines, because basically what happens is the airlines killed some dogs and then yeah. uh, they had uh, backlash because of it. And now they're much more restrictive about um, when they allow you to do it and how they allow you to do it and stuff like that, which is all good. Uh, but right. it's just like that's the that's like the weather restriction. Like they had dogs that it was too hot and yeah. like um the dogs would be sitting in the hold on the tarmac the plane would get held up and that's it's hot and the dogs can get exhaustion and problems can ins- like stuff like right. that so they're yeah. that's why now they ha- they're really strict on the temperature issues i've never my dogs came from the midwest i'm sure if you flew them from like la or something they might that might not i don't know if they'll allow that but yeah but other than that now there's a special uh at least here in boston there's a special gate they come into so you just drive over there and pick them up. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've never had to do it. And certainly when I think about taking longer distance trips, it's in my head. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to fly a dog. I guess yeah, that would be my first yeah. choice. But Yeah. If yeah. I was going hunting somewhere, I, would ne- I wouldn't fly a dog. I wouldn't put one of my dogs yeah. on a plane. Yeah. Uh, I would want it to be driven. And that's why, I, you know, this dog hauling thing. I used to have a friend that used to go out uh, to Montana every fall. And he used to take like a dozen dogs with him. Yeah. Um, and he would go out there for the whole month, and he would take my dog, and I would go out there and uh, fly into Montana and meet him and hunt for a couple of weeks, and then come back, and then he'd yeah. bring my dog back. So, and that That's was always nice really cool because I, you know, I don't if I go someplace hunting, I want to hunt with my own dogs. I just for sure want to yeah. have other dogs. So. When you did that, were you flying your own guns too, or was he taking your guns? Too? He would take my guns, okay. but I flown I flown guns. Yeah, uh, I've never had a problem. And what I do now, though, is uh, I actually mail them out. So it's okay. it's easier to mail guns. That makes sense. Yeah, and you can mail stuff to your. So if you say you want to go to, if you um, you can mail guns to yourself. 
without having yeah, to you can mail it to like a UPS center or something. Yeah, or you can mail it to someone's address, but address it to yourself. It's, okay, and okay. so you don't have to fill it. In. There's no 4473 paperwork, at least on long gotcha. guns. I don't know about I don't know about pistols and stuff, but but so I could like when I I bought this to South Dakota, I would mail my guns. I'd send them out by like FedEx ground. Um, I'd put my name on it and put it in a case, um, and then I'd put it out. You know, I'd, I'd send it a week ahead of time. Just send it out there. It'd be there yep. I, when I got there, and then on the way on the return, I would just you know drop it off at the FedEx center, and they would bring it back. I've done that a lot. You know, that's that's an easy way to go because uh, dealing with it in the airport, it right. just takes a while. And, and I'm sure that's gotten more and more difficult over the years. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt. You have to. They usually you have to go through a little separate check in, and they inspect it. In my experience, they inspect it. It's it's more just. Uh, I worry about the way the guns are handled. Not to say that you know when I put them in FedEx, I have the super heavy duty case. I mean, you could probably sure I could probably drive my pickup truck over it, and it wouldn't bother it. Yeah, you're not putting it in your carrying case and just crossing your fingers. Yeah, yeah, th- <laughs> I have this like massive case, and then I don't. It's not a. It's not a really fancy gun, you know. But what's so I, the, the thing that's the really weird, crazy thing is though. Last time I flew guns, I flew into South Dakota, and I flew out there for opening day. So I flew into Sioux Falls, and you know, there's tons of guys. Like you, go, if you're on an airplane out of like Minneapolis, half the like two thirds of the guys on the plane are all going hunting. Right. So everybody's got guns. And everyone and, and gun cases, like the travel cases, all kind of look the same. Sure. So you start, yeah. you see him come off the escal, uh, off the uh, you know the <laughs> little tr- the little uh, escalator that comes out with a, all your luggage. All the cases look the same. And I actually grabbed a case, got out to my truck, looked at it, and I was like, "Whoops! Oh boy, this isn't my case." <laughs> and uh, you know, I looked at the little tag on it, and I was like, "Gee." So uh, what I actually did say, now is... It didn't say Purdy on it, did it? No, no. <laughs> it didn't. That's why I went back. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, so what I do now, the, I, the advice I give people is if you have one of those cases, like uh, wrap like orange Identify tape it. around it or something. So yeah. then you see it coming off right away because I knew if I did it, it happens all the time. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's guys all the time, especially like in South Dakota, those guys going to lodges. They probably get to the lodge and they're like, they go to take the case out and they're like, this isn't my case. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, even with suitcases, sometimes, you know, you see one, is that mine? Or yeah, they all look check, the same. Check the yeah. tag, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Has it been a while since you've taken an out-of-state trip? Have you just been kind of chasing grouse of New England recently? Yeah, the last time I went out west was, I think 2012 was my last trip to South Dakota. Okay. And I don't really... In- I don't really anticipate going back out there. I don't anything against it. I mean, I know. So I, I hunted a lot in South Dakota from like 2001, 2000 to 2010. And when the bird the hunting was really phenomenal. And I know it's dropped off a lot since then. And I don't know that I'd want to see it. It'd be kind of sad to see it, you know. But And then the other thing is I just, I, I just do a lot more grouse hunting. Um, yeah. It's not that far away. I, for my kind of dogs, grouse and woodcock's a lot better. Pheasants really tough, you know. Pheasants are tough on pointers. You know, it's not. They're really more of a flushing, especially if you hunt them in shelter belts and that kind of cover. It's not cover that pheasants sit still in. So, it's if you live, if you live near good populations of wild bird and you've got access to wild birds and land, it's hard to think about making a really long trip you know yeah unless it's really great hunting yeah i mean that when right. i used to go out to south right. dakota 
it was like nothing I'd ever seen, and I doubt it'll be. Like, I don't. I don't think that'll ever come back in my lifetime. But we used to see it. You know, it wasn't a big deal to see a thousand pheasants a day. Wow. They were just everywhere. They were, you know, you drive by property you couldn't hunt, like private land, and you'd look out and there'd be a couple hundred pheasants out, you know, pecking on the uh, the corn that had fallen down. They'd come out in the evenings and they were just they were just everywhere. Uh, but I know that since then, a lot of that land, all the shelter belts got dug out so the farmers could, uh, you know, farm more land and do stuff like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I'm guessing in the my casual observance of sort of the CRP, like I'm guessing there was more CRP back then. There was than, a shitload more. Yeah. Like hundreds of thousands of acres. We're in a state more. right now where we don't have as much as we did yeah. at that point. I, wouldn't, yeah. I bet you there's probably at least a half a million acres more back then. And that's one of the reasons why it was so good. It was like, a, it was like yeah. uh, there was like this freakish occurrence that happened. And I think it had something to do basically, – basically there was a ton of land that was put into CRP by farmers. Yeah. And – and that sort of all came together at the end of the 90s. And so there was just a freakish explosion. I think they had some great weather periods. And sure. so there were a lot of areas that in 2000 that had pheasants that in 1990 didn't have pheasants. Like they, the pheasants expanded much further west, um, closer to pier. So because uh, I, I have family that's out there and they, you know, talking to my brother. Um, yeah. They didn't have pheasants when he was a kid when they were growing up. Like they were, they were, uh, they weren't that common. And uh, we used to yeah. go to his family's ranch out there, and there were tons of pheasants there everywhere. And that was all because of the way the land changed over. Things switched from there was uh, more farming and less ranching. And then what happened is this: one of the big things that changed everything was the um, ethanol boom. So once ethanol yeah. boomed, uh, corn became more valuable. They dug up more land to put more corn in. They dug up, they, you know, they took out shelter belts. They took out cattail, wet areas. They tiled that up to dry it up so they could farm more. So, and then they took the CRP out. So you have less good habitat. You have less birds. Yeah, that's, what that's not good. <laughs> I know it's a balance. There's lots, a lot of factors that play on the landscape. And I, I hear more and more about the farm bill and CR, CRP enrollment. And I was listening to something the other day with uh, Ed Arnett from TRCP talking about the farm bill and how they need to get some more uh, enrollment in CRP. But there's, again, it's not every decision gets made with upland birds in mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, is if the farmers aren't going to put it in CRP if they can make more money doing something else. Right. And that was yeah. why there was this, this, that's why there was this boom was because I think it was low wheat prices or something like that. Like, uh, and that, and the farmers could make more money by putting it in a CRP. It was easier. And now they can make it by actually harvesting, so they switched over. Anyway, yeah, but it was it used to be. I mean, talk to somebody who used to hunt in South Dakota and from like 2001 to 2010, and it was just amazing. It's interesting how how much you hear things like that, where it's not like you're talking about 50 years ago. You're talking about you know 10, 20 years ago, and the changes that happen within a lifetime. And just think about like you know we're obviously we're here right now and we, we kind of know the last handful of years and the next couple of years you can kind of predict, but 10 years from now, who the hell knows? Yeah. Well, if, so if, if people started, so if they put the, like, yeah, I mean, it could change over if there was huge CRP enrollment, like 20 years from now, make you good. But like the shelter belts aren't coming back in my lifetime. Those shelter, well, belts, yeah. those shelter yeah. belts take a long time to grow, but no, I yeah. mean, 
just like the the switch that from from you know from 1990 to 2015 or 2010 there was areas like I said there weren't there were very few pheasants and then they were overrun with pheasants yeah um, so it could change back I mean if people if people uh, were more conservation minded and they switched stuff over you know. Yeah, but you know some of the stuff though, like when they, uh, I think when they tile stuff up to get rid of wet, low wet areas, I don't know that you can do much about that though. You don't just flip a switch there. Yeah, I don't think you just. Uh, I don't know. You, I don't know if you have to go in and grind that up or. But anyway, I would not. I would not know. Yeah, anyway, so I just yeah. moved on. You know, who wants to yeah. be going around going, oh, you should have seen it when. <laughs> I saw yeah. it. It was incredible, and uh, yeah, the biggest yeah. thing was to sort of. I made sure I I spent a lot of time out there because I I figured it wasn't going to last forever. So. Yeah. Well, what's going on in the world of guns, Greg? What can you tell me about? Uh, so the biggest thing I was actually just getting ready to uh, put a post up on my blog, dogsanddoubles uh, dot com, about uh, sort of the prices have started to come back a little on a lot of stuff. Um, coming down. They were coming down, and they've actually turned. So they and they and the oh. gun market itself is pretty. It, the gun market itself is really hot right now. Um, okay. And stuff that uh, – so stuff that like a year ago was difficult to sell. So like uh, 12-gauge British box locks and 12-gauge American, like a 12-gauge Parker and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Those prices have stabilized and they're starting to come up a little. There's demand out there for that stuff. So you say come back, you mean in the way that I don't want them to Well, go. I mean the thing is is they're not where they were. They're not they're, it's not where they were 10 years ago. And yeah, I don't think you're yeah. going to see that again for a while. You know, that demand that we had 10 years ago, we had like from 2000 to 2010, you had all these baby boomer guys who'd always wanted to have a Parker or something. Yeah. And they they poured into the market. Um, you had a lot of new interest from like uh, Double Gun Journal. All that stuff came together, and there was just a, and prices shot up. I don't think that's going to come back, uh, at least not for a while. Uh, but what you are seeing is that stuff that you couldn't get rid of last year for a thousand bucks, you can sell for twelve hundred dollars now. Now maybe it was worth two thousand at the peak, but it's starting to pick up and get back to get back in there. And I know there's a lot of guys who, a lot of older guys who have collections of guns. And they've yep. been sitting on the sidelines because they didn't. They basically don't want to take the hit. They don't want to realize. They don't have to accept the fact that correct their stuff wasn't isn't worth what it was. Well, there there's a little bit of hope. You know, they can make more money now. And I think you're getting to a point where a lot of stuff. It's a good time. It's a good time to sell uh, because the prices are firming up. I don't know how much firmer they'll get. You know, it's like sure. trying to time the stock market. But yeah. at least you can get stuff sold. And you can move it. And uh, there seems to be uh, more interest just in general and like side-by-sides and stuff. You know, we talked about this about how, mm-hmm. you know, the Italian companies are introducing new out- new makers are coming on with new side-by-sides. And so there's definitely more interest in the new stuff. And that always means there's more interest in the vintage stuff. So. Yeah. There's um, – I, I know the that is something we talked about previously on here, talking about vintage guns and, and an aging group of – folks that have big collections that will would someday find their way back to the market or at least you can kind of anticipate that whether or not that's happening right now but you're you're saying that if folks were wanting to sell now might not yeah and now's a good time to consider doing it because i don't know i don't know how long this will continue but do you go through stretches of 
Because I, I guess you know, I, I obviously understand you have a passion for these guns, and you are. Would you do you consider yourself a collector? Ah, uh, not really. No. Okay. Because I don't have like so guys who are collectors. To me, so I use the stuff I use. I use most of the stuff I get. Yeah. And uh, and I don't have a real. Yes, I, I don't. I don't have a real focus on anyone. You know, so there, I'm not like a Parker collector. And there's guys who collect Parkers. Every, they want to get one example, one like twelve gauge example of every grade, you know. Yep. And I don't care. I don't, you know, I, I'm not interested in accumulating all of them. Um, yeah. I just find stuff that I think's nice, and if I see it, and the price is good, I'll buy it. I mean, I used to, I guess, I used to be more of like an accumulator, and I've always been more just kind of interested in them. So I would yep. buy them just to check them out and see what they're all about, and then get rid of them. I've never yep. had the liquidity to just pile the things up. Um, right. You know, I've always had one that had to had to fund the next one. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and my interest in them is also in using them. Like I said, like I know I know people yeah. who don't shoot and they have gun collections. They just yeah. like guns and yeah, like collecting. Yeah, and that's what I was I was curious, and I I guess I I probably would have guessed that you were not an really an accumulator. You were more kind of chasing down things that interested you and wanting to see what they're all about. Use them. I feel like that's kind of where i find myself and as i've dove deeper into it i mean just the history that gets tied into gun making and i mean that's intriguing to me and the craftsmanship and the quality and all the different varieties and i mean <laughs> i guess if i needed something else to spend my time on this is it shotguns are there's a it's a big rabbit hole to go down it's, yeah it's a huge rabbit hole there's tons <laughs> of stuff to learn and st- stuff to see and i know that uh I think the more you learn and the more you see, the more uh, the pickier you get and the more uh, sort of discerning you get about what you like. Mm-hmm. And that's also been for me. And like I, I went through like a lot of guys, like I started out with like Fox Sterlingworths and Parkers yep. and L.C. Smiths. And you begin to look at, you know, as you see more stuff, you can you appreciate different things and you like different things. And Yeah, I would say that's really since the last time that you and I spoke at that time, a couple of years ago, I had probably had recently got my first fox drilling worth and yeah i, I like that gun i actually don't carry much anymore because i don't shoot it that well because <laughs> it's got too stuff, much drop in the stock something we talked about yeah we talked about that that's on right that's episode. what everybody yeah. learns once they buy one <laughs> right yeah and and now i've i you know i was kind of infatuated with that gun in the history of the fox company and now i've sort of taken a step back and i've realized like there's just so much else out there that i i want to i'd like to put my hands on some of these other guns and shoot some of this other stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I know better what I shoot a better as yeah. for a gun. So that, that helps. And that's kind of, it's got me looking across the pond a little bit to English guns, which I think is something that we haven't really talked about. And I kind of want to talk about that. I've been reading a lot lately about the English gun making and sort of everything that happened at the turn of the 19th century. And really, I mean, this won't be news to folks that have been, collecting or buying guns for a long time but just fascinating how that all came together the breech loading break action double gun at the end of the 1800s like they essentially perfected that gun mm-hmm. and I, I i don't know like have you ever come up with or heard anybody make an analogy like what other industry did they literally perfect the thing 150 right, years ago right. or whatever and yeah. like there's no I mean, the innovation that happens in the gun world today is not really related to, like, it's just, like, some of it's gimmicky, and I wouldn't say that entirely, because, like, 
our interview with Cesar Guarini, I think is that's an example of like really excellent innovation in gun making. But yeah, it's not they're not huge steps forward though. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. not like the difference between a hammer gun and a hammerless gun. You know, like hammerless or like a computer in nineteen eighty yeah, yeah, versus yeah, a computer yeah. today. You yeah, know? it's just uh, like I guess kind of like combustion engines haven't really. I don't know okay. how much different a, uh, you know, a Ford. I mean, they're it's obviously they're, they're you know fuel injection and stuff, but overall combustion engines are still kind of very similar. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but definitely side by sides. I mean, they're like a hammerless box lock side by side or side lock side by side. I mean, Purdy is building the same gun today that they were right. building in eight, basically you know, nineteen hundred. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, it's the same gun. Uh, they really they, some of the techniques they use to make it. Um, some of they've made some little tweaks to probably make them a little quicker to make. Um, yep. But other than that, it's it really is the same gun. Same thing with Boss. A Boss OU, that, a brand new Boss OU that you buy today is essentially the same gun that they are making in 1920. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's they did pretty much perfect it. And, and that's part of the problem. They can't, you, you can't, you got to come up with something new to sell people. What stuff. else do you do? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You have to keep inventing yeah. a new something new to get them in the door. You, so you come out with 25-inch barrels or you come out with 34-inch barrels. Or you, right. I just was reading the uh, – I'm reading currently the book by Michael McIntosh, Best Guns. Yeah. And, which is a really good um, – again, from, like – you probably read that book 10 years ago, Greg, but it takes you around the world as far as gun making goes. And it, it starts out in America and it kind of hits the Fox, Parker, Ithaca, Lefevre, all those stories, which is very cool for American guns. And then now I'm in the the UK section reading about all the British gun makers. And uh, it's, I mean, it's quite fascinating how that story really came together. Yeah, yeah. my that, And all those Michael McIntosh books are awesome. He's definitely... He's probably my favorite overall a gun writer. Um, yeah. And it's a great story. Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of a lot of the American guns were, I always thought that a lot of the American guns were based on British designs. They were basically trying to find their way around patents. Uh, they didn't yeah. want to infringe on patents. So they kind of came up with their own spin on things, especially like a Fox and the Parker. And then Ithaca was trying to come up with a real inexpensive way to make guns and all the different ways people approached it, the, the difference between like in the, the the audience for American guns is a lot different than the audience for British guns, and yeah. how that affected the uh, the end product. Uh, so yeah, like you say, you can go down you can go down a huge rabbit hole on this, and you can there's yeah. tons to learn. And this is just like, and that's just shotguns, and there's double rifles, right, right, yeah, all that stuff is a whole other world. I gotta draw the line somewhere, Greg. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you have so much time you can dedicate to this stuff. So. Yeah. I know in the past we we ran circles around kind of the fox fox guns, and we probably talked a little bit about Parkers. But how much have you shot, handled the Ithacas, the Lefevers, the LC Smiths? I've had I've, no, I've, I've had a bunch of LC Smiths. I've okay. had uh, Ithacas. I've had I've had them all basically. I've shot them all. As far as uh, I think my favorites overall, my favorite is. Uh, Lefevers are my favorite. And Lefevers, when I say Lefevers, I mean um, what are called Syracuse Lefevers. There's different incarnations of Lefever. Yeah. And the ones I'm interested in, I think they were made from like 1890 to about 1917, like right around in there. Um, but There's a lot of partnerships back then, like partnerships that came together in the gunmaking world and then went separate ways. And I think yeah. Lefever was one of them where you had, it was Dan Lefever mm-hmm. and... 
and then he was working with somebody and then they would whatever they would part ways and then you'd have somebody over here advertising a Lefevre gun and then somebody over here advertising it a little bit different way so mm-hmm. yeah he had a lot of partnerships like starting out he had there was different different groups of guys came together to build the guns and then he started his own company and then somehow lost control of it and he went off and yeah. started another company and like LC Smith the guys that started LC Smith uh, I guess Lyman Cornelius Smith I think the guy's name uh, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I think he started it in Syracuse or something. Uh, that company went some di- through some different iterations, but the the family that started that sold the business off and went off to found the L.C. Smith typewriter, and that's how they got yes. filthy rich. Because basically, they were looking at guns and like this is a waste of time. We can make more money doing something else. So they sold it off, and then they founded L.C. Smith. The LC, I think L.C. Smith Corona or something. Anyway, they, they they invented basically the the some of the first useful typewriters, and they got filthy rich off that. But Elsie Smith went through different incarnations too. They sold the company to like the Hunter Brothers or something in 1913. Changed the guns a little bit. Ithaca, I think Ithaca was owned by the same people for a long time, the same organization. But they came up with a lot of different models. Yeah, there was iterations in yeah, their gun there were making. like flues and there was the NID. I've owned flues and I've owned the NIDs. Uh, I haven't owned. There's some other weird ones out there. But the the best ones are the NIDs. Those are the ones I think they started making them in like 1920s or so. They start at 425,000 on the serial numbers. But Ithaca made tons of guns. I mean, they're probably the most prolific of all the American gun makers, side by side makers. But um, the NIDs are the latest ones, and they're they're good guns. You know, they're like they're like F-150 pickup trucks. They're you yeah, know, they're in like. Like old school F-150s, not those new fancy platinum ones. They're like the old <laughs> ones. They're like, they're like work guns, you know? <laughs> and they used to be pretty cheap. Uh, not so that not so much anymore, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, and the L.C. Smiths are cool. I don't think if I were to rank them, I would put, I like um, I like Parker's and Lefevre's probably up near the top. I put yeah. Fox in the middle and then L.C. Smiths and Ithaca's would come in near the bottom. So. Well, as soon as you start ranking them, you're going to piss somebody off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I've had them all, I shot them well, they've all. They've all got their collector clubs and, yeah. <laughs> but they're all cool in their own ways, aren't they? Right, right. I guess that's that, that would be my takeaway is, I mean, it's part of the story of shotguns in America. And, uh, again, I, I enjoy reading about the history. I know that's not for everybody, but. Yeah. The other one I, I did want to ask you about was the Winchester Model 21. Because that's that's a unique story. Yeah, and those guns are, as far as I understand, they're I mean they're incredibly well built, super strong guns. They they demand a really high price relative to some other stuff you see on the market. Yeah, so I don't know how well made how well made they are really. Um, okay, I think that's a little bit of a myth. I don't think they're any superior. I don't think they're superior to a Parker or anything like that. And the idea, the way their ba- their barrels are put together, are superior. I don't I don't think there's any truth in that. I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, myth and misinformation around that. Um, the guns themselves, they're you know they're they're fine, they're good guns, they work, but I don't know if they're any they're superior in any way. Uh, yeah. I never thought they were very attractive. That's the interesting thing about them; they're pretty pedestrian looking. Yeah, I mean, I always thought they're they're kind of ugly. They uh, they're heavy, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. They are right. I mean, you're right. They're expensive. The only ones I ever really liked were the real early 12 gauges with the double triggers and the funky stocks on them. 
They eventually switched to single triggers, I think. Yeah, a lot of single triggers. They just get more refined, um, and then they get more, you know, and they start doing a lot of different grades, and then they have the Grand Americans, and the Grand Americans are like the pimped-out Cadillac version. Yeah. They're guys who like those, and I I know people that uh, tell me that, uh, like those, the big ones too, the big heavy ones with like the vent ribs and the big pistol grips, and they've got the funky engraving, uh, checkering on them. People swear that they shoot those guns phenomenally well. I know people who have a lot of British guns and are really uh, crazy about British guns. And the gun they sh- the guns they shoot the best is like I know a guy has a Model Twenty One Trap or something, but it's one of those big, heavy Twenty Ones that it's got like yep. the beaver. T- it's got all the crap on it. It's actually it's the exact opposite of a British gun. But the Model Twenty One is the gun he shoots the best. He doesn't want to admit it. Like he's he's horrified that that's true, but <laughs> that's the case. So. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I mean, if, I, it's not a gun that I would ever, I, I, I think I had one of those 12 gauges, one of the, I had an early one with double triggers and it was, so you did own one. It was fine. Yeah. 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 But it wasn't anything. It wasn't all it was hyped up to be. So, yeah. <laughs> at least for me. Interesting. Well, I've, I've never had one. I, uh, yeah. I know a couple people that I think have had, um, had them in the family kind of passed down. I just. The thing that always jumps out at me is when I see one for sale, they seem to be very highly priced. They do. I don't know. I don't know that they're that rare, really. I wouldn't be surprised if there was fifty thousand of those built. But for whatever reason, they you know they have. I think maybe because uh, they were made later, you know, they use probably more modern. They continued steels. making them. Yeah, they made them for yep. a long time. They started. I don't think they started making them until like the thirties or something. Yeah. Um, there's a story, I want to say the guy's name is, I'm going to mess this up, but it's Olin. Who yeah, yeah, yeah. Invent, yeah. Mm-hmm. He invented the Western ammunition mm-hmm. and eventually came together with Winchester. And I, I'm reading all this stuff. It's fresh in my mind, but it all runs together because Macintosh, I mean, he goes down. I mean, he tells you why, like, there was X number of guns produced and what the factors were going on, but I just have too much stuff rolling around in my head. But I do know that that guy he kept the Winchester Model 21 alive, like, against all odds, mm-hmm. like, through time, and, and that's why there are, I think, a number of them made. Yeah, yeah, I think he believed in them, and I think he just wanted... I, I think it was probably kind of a a brand thing that he had, an idea for Winchester. Mm-hmm. I think they probably made uh, more money on other stuff, and he just wanted to keep it going so that they had a side-by-side shotgun. And by the time he was building that, that was the only high-quality side-by-side I mean, after World War II, that was uh, that was pretty much it. That was being made in America. You know, there was like the Fox Model B, which was a low quality gun. You know, there were some Stevens being made, but that was the only high quality American gun um, that you could order. And I think that's part of you know. It, it's, there's always a lot of American mystique around this stuff. You know, yeah. That yeah. Uh, attracts people to them. So. Well, here we are talking about American guns again. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I think we maybe talked about this on a previous episode, but I'm I keep circling back to this. For folks that don't know, there's this discrepancy in that a lot of American guns were made with, I'd say, maybe shorter length of pull, but definitely more drop, more yeah. drop at heel in the stocks, as opposed to their overseas counterparts and really the English guns. You'll see drop in some of the Continental stuff, from the Germans and the Belgians, but less so in the English gun. Have you ever heard? I've heard a bunch of like sort of pet theories about we're bigger now or we we shoot 
with our heads higher today? Like, have you ever heard a really good definitive explanation as to why that is, Greg? So I've never heard, no, I've never heard a good explanation. But my theory is that Americans tended to hold their heads up when they shot. Because if if you take one of those, um, so if you take a gun with a lot of drop and you bring your cheek hard down to the comb, you'd only see the back of the gun. You can't. You're looking at the back yeah, of the yeah, action. Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. see. And I think what hap- I think what was going on is a lot of Americans back then, when they shot, they weren't. It, um, so first of all, they weren't learning to shoot like a lot of guys learn to shoot now. Like they weren't going to. Mm-hmm. They weren't going out and shooting sporting clays, right? Yeah. Because when you shoot sporting clays, you know you're. You're, you're mounting that gun and you're, you're bringing your cheek down hard so you can get consistent mounts and you're doing stuff like that. Especially if you're pre-mounting. Which yeah, yeah. I won't, I won't recommend on the Upland podcast. but <laughs> Well, yeah, but if you learn to shoot that way, that's what you're going to do. And if you want to shoot more accurately, that's, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. I mean, that's just, Consistency. Yeah, you want the consistent mount. I don't think, the, I don't think the, those uh, early American shooters uh, were learning to shoot with their heads down hard on the cones. And... I think they the conditions they were shooting in they were shooting in uh, shooting a lot of wild game, and they were flushing birds up. Um, in those situations, you want to have your head up and you want to be able to see what's going on. Yeah. Um, I think, and I think that's always been my theory. And I also think there was just a lot more birds. So, if you're taking a lot more shots over the course of the day, in the you know, so say those guns are a little less accurate, but you're making a lot more shots, you're still killing a lot of birds. So, and I think in the UK there was. The shooting was much more formal there. And, you know, if, if you were someone driven who was going, shoots. like, shooting yeah. driven birds, you were wealthy. Yep. And you were most likely taught to shoot by someone. And they were bringing their heads down. Um, driven game is, you know, driven shooting is a lot more like target shooting. You know, the birds are high. But basically, again, they were bringing their heads down. So they had the higher combs in order to make those guns work for them in those situations. That's yeah. always been my theory. I don't know anything about it. I actually I saw an article once about um, uh, I have an I have an article about a guy who recommended extreme drops in the stock, but he also recommended really high combs. So if you can imagine, like the stock, it was almost like a dogleg stock. Like so, it, they just they just like drop off the ass end from the. Comb. So you got a, a steeper angle, so yeah, it yeah. starts starts up high, but then it yeah, drops. Yeah, so it down just drops right off. Yeah. And yeah. the reason he advocated for that was he wanted you to be able to, he, so he didn't like the idea of scrunching down, like crawling mm-hmm. a comb, crawling a stock, like you'll see target shooters do. Yeah. He wanted you to be able to hold your head up high. So when you mounted the gun, you should be able to hold your head up high and see what's going on. You pull the gun up and it, and it, the, the comb hits your cheek. In order for that to happen, the cheek, the comb has got to be really high because the gun itself has to be able to mount down in your shoulder. Right. So anyway, this yeah. guy in the article, he has these parkers. And they have he has them mounted that way, and they look like dog legs. Like he's got them restocked. Yeah, he had them restocked so that they would be. So, (laughs) and he shows them mounting them, and it's you know if you think about it, have you ever seen a gun with a with a Monte Carlo stock? Yeah, that's what a Monte Carlo stock does. So Monte Carlo stock it drops the butt of the stock down onto your shoulder, while keeping the comb really high, so that it's a much more natural mount. You don't have to drop your head down. So. Oh. I mean, the guy was onto something. They just—they're just ugly as shit. And so. yeah, they don't—they definitely don't have the the sleek lines. Yeah, of the yeah, looking. Gun. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, W. C. Scott used to make. Uh, they used to make uh, pigeon guns and target guns with Monte Carlo stocks, but uh, they were never super popular. I've seen some Parkers with them. 
Uh, yeah. But yeah. So. Yeah, int- interesting stuff. And again, that it's a rabbit hole all in itself. Many many folks will grab a gun off the rack and shoot it and be. Yeah, you know, some guys happy, can do. Happy with I it. can shoot. Yeah. I can shoot uh, guns with dropping them if I practice a little. Yeah. Um, and that's probably more because I'm not a. I didn't. I didn't learn to shoot at a target range and stuff. Yeah. You know, so I don't have that. I don't have that habit of wanting to get my head down and really lock it on the stock. Yeah. So. Yeah. So when it comes to English guns, walk me through a little bit about the difference between, say, like guns that were made in London and then guns that were made in Birmingham. Because you actually wrote about this a little bit in article you wrote on the ProjectUpland.com website about how the box lock kind of came to be. Mm-hmm. And you talked about sort of what was going on in London and Birmingham, which is essentially 100 miles away kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so Wesley Richards was in Birmingham. So Birmingham is a it's a city that is north, uh, let's see, northwest of London. I know you're right. It's like 120 miles. Yeah. Uh, and London is like, back then, London was the center of the world. London was the shit. And if you were really rich... You had a house in London, um, but that was the center of the world, center of sophistication in a lot of ways. Birmingham was more like, uh, so it was more like, um, like the working town. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't nearly as polished. Uh, it wasn't as fancy. And Wesley Richards was up in Birmingham, um, and there are a lot of gun makers in Birmingham. And Wesley Richards invented what we call the box lock, the box lock shotgun. And it was one of the first really successful hammerless designs. And it was overall, I mean, it's one of the most successful hammerless shotgun designs of all time. And it's still used today. It's probably the most copied design of all time. And when you say hammerless, you're referring to the fact that the guns used to have hammers on the outside Correct. of the gun. Right. It still has going, hammers, but they're not exposed. going inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So that was, the big, that was the big change that they made, uh, yep. like, starting in the 1870s, late 1860s. I'm sorry, uh, like the 1880s. They took those hammers that were exposed, and they moved them inside the guns. Yeah. Um, and different people were trying to come up with different patents for how to do that. And Wesley Richards came up with one of the first successful patents, something that was uh, it was easy to build. It worked and uh, people responded to it by buying it. Um, yeah. But they, but he was in Birmingham. So his guns are being made in Birmingham. People uh, and because of that there was a stigma to them. Um, sure. They weren't. Birmingham wasn't associated with producing the finest quality goods. Um, yep. And it also wasn't where the big money was. And that was all in London because that was, uh, you know, the Birmingham, uh, Buckingham Palace is in London, the Queen's there. So uh, mm-hmm. everyone that sort of uh, traveled in that world was around there. The West End of London, that area was associated with having sort of um, the premier quality goods. And the gun makers there, uh, by association, were considered to be the best gun makers in the world. And the designs they came up with, so Purdy came up with a design for a hammerless gun, but theirs is a side lock. It's a different design. Yeah. Um, Holland and Holland came up with one. Boss came up with one. Those designs are different. Uh, they're probably, the designs themselves are more complicated. But I don't know that they're any better than a Wesley Richards box lock. But because of the stigma of Birmingham versus London, the London guns uh, were more prestigious in their day, and they're still more prestigious. So, and that was um, when I wrote in that article. That was it. Was basically snobbishness uh, that 
Yeah. Uh, and it was a, that was a very snobbish time. I mean, if you if you were from a certain background and you shot at certain places, you wouldn't show up with box locks. You wouldn't be invited back because a gentleman didn't shoot box locks. You shot side locks. Um, and then if you were from certain backgrounds, you shot purdies or you shot, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that's the way that people were. And um, so that was yeah. one of the big reasons why uh, Wesley Richards were popular over here. They came over here to try to find a bigger market because um, they couldn't sell as much in the UK. So okay. at least their shotguns. Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask you is, of course, any kind of gun design, you know, there's a million examples of each one. There's a million box locks. There's a million side locks. Oh, can you hear that? Is it on my end? No, it's on my end. There's a blender going oh. on over here. <laughs> Hang on one second. <laughs> All right. Anyways, back to box locks and side locks. I wanted your take on, I know there's some, I think the idea behind the side lock is it's kind of like has like the sleekest lines and, or at least that's, you know, how it was. How it was kind of set up yeah. where it's this fine handling sleek line gun mm-hmm. today we have box locks that i think kind of reach some of that mm-hmm. but in your experience handling either like do you find a, a huge difference in like a perfectly balanced side lock versus a, a box lock no no i don't think there's any i i don't notice a difference uh the thing is is but the thing is is there's as long as the guns were both made to the same levels of quality there's no real there's not much of a difference you know, yeah. but box locks were made. Uh, I think box locks were definitely uh, less expensive to build. I think they were, right. um, and they tended to have been built in a wider range of grades. So, like, there's really inexpensive box locks out there that don't compare to a nice side lock. Right. Um, right. Uh, whereas companies like uh, you know companies like Purdy and Boss tended to focus most of their energy on making really fine guns. Right. Um, a really nice greener, a really nice Wesley Richards. Uh, they handle they handle great. I don't notice, I don't notice a difference. I mean, they're sure there's guys out there who are, you know, probably sensitive enough to it or shoot enough that can right. probably tell you there's a difference. But yeah. I think a lot of it's psychological. Yeah, and it's. I mean, again, there's there's so much variety, and it's hard to make an apples to apples comparison. And today, you know, what you see in a in a side by side at like say a, an entry level market side by side, you know, it's going to be a box lock, and that's yeah. just the way that it is because they're i mean the designs and the patents that were developed 100 some odd years ago they're still kind of like that's that's the way to build the gun and now we have cnc machining and we got processes where we can build those guns at economical prices and yeah that's what we see yeah i think most of the bo- I, some of those italian guns that are that are being made now uh those italian side-by-sides i don't know i don't think those are box locks i mean they look like box locks but i think they're trigger plate guns Really? Yeah, so I think they're basically, uh, I think they're basically the same design that the over and unders, a lot of the Italian over and unders use, and they've just okay. modified it for a side by side. But the but the lock work sits on the trigger plate, so it's not technically. It looks like a box lock, but it's not really a box lock. But uh, you know, AYAs they make a box lock. All those other and those are just Anson and Dealey box locks. Wesley Richards mm-hmm. um, yep. is still out there building guns. They're still you know making box locks. So. Well, we won't dive into trigger plate yeah, guns no, today, but down another hole. <laughs> but I will I will say that uh, you've got an article upcoming in in a future issue of the magazine that's going to talk about probably the most would you say the most famous trigger plate? Gun? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good yeah. segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dixon. Give us a yeah. give us a sneak peek on that one. Yeah, so it's all about. So I wrote an article for upcoming issue of uh, Project Upland, which is about the history 
of uh, John Dixon and Son, the gun, this famous Scottish gunmaker, and yep. they're famous for a gun called the Round Action, which uh, is a trigger plate design, trigger plate side by side. I think it's the only. Well, it was. Uh, I want to say it was the only mass produced. So there was the only British trigger plate gun that was made in any real numbers, and it was it was it was handmade. All the all round action Dixons are best quality guns. There were a few other people that made kind of trigger plate guns in the UK, but they didn't make them in very many, and didn't make a lot of them. They're pretty unusual. Uh, but the Dixons were made in uh, Edinburgh. I think they started making them in like 1880, and they still make them today. Uh, they're kind of quirky guns. Um, yeah. And they have a real following. You know, people are people are crazy about them, and they really like them. But they're not a lot of them made, and yeah. uh, it's a really neat story uh, for somebody that's into double guns and side by sides. It definitely is intriguing. But the uh, the unfortunate thing is they're like essentially out of reach for. Uh, <laughs> for they're pretty pricey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a good you have one. To really want one? Yeah, I mean, even a good used ones, you know, at least eight grand. Um, yeah. And I think the even the brand so brand new. I think if you wanted to order one nowadays, I don't know, they're like, I don't know, $60,000 or something, say like yeah. that, which <laughs> is a ridiculous sum of money. But as right. far as British guns, brand new British guns go, that's actually on the, right. that's, uh, that's on the less expensive side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But they're fantastic guns. They're, and they're, they're totally different than a box lock. They're totally different than a side lock. You know, they're you know they're like a platypus. They're, they're they're it's its own thing. It's unique. It's unusual. It's sort of very much this quirky design that um, kind of originated in Scotland. They borrowed some ideas from Germany, uh, mm-hmm. but it created and they it created a gun that was very popular within um, basically within like the guy that owns Dixon now told me so they built two thousand round actions. Basically, they built maybe 2,200 to date they've made. And something like 70% of those guns were sold to people that lived within like 150 miles of Edinburgh. So they had, uh, amongst the like wealthy people that lived up there, they had a real devout following. Uh, and that's the way it was. You know, it's only been in the last like 10, 15 years that it become really popular with Americans. And then everybody saw that yeah. video on YouTube with a guy shooting it. Now everybody's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that just came out recently. And yeah. I... Oddly, like I haven't gone looking for this, but I've had a number of people mention that. Yeah, I've had a bunch. (laughs) And they all want a Dixon now. (laughs) And coincidentally, you're writing this article about it. You know, I mean, it's yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. The value of them is going to skyrocket now. But yeah, the way that uh, it in the video, it's Simon Reinhold. He talks about it, and he talks about how they were designed to shoot red grouse in in over there. But he talks about it like a game gun and. I got a lot of people excited. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and they're they're worth they're worth all the attention. Uh, they're beautifully made guns, uh, and they they were just like I said because they're so many of them were sold uh, near the maker. They never got the notoriety that uh, like guns yeah. like Purdy's. I think I think Dixon did a little bit to try to sell them over here in the U.S., uh, but for a long time, uh, I mean, back when I back in two thousand, I worked in a gun shop. We had one in there and. No one knew what the hell the thing was. Nobody cared. Yeah. No one like you'd show it to them, and they just, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like you put rotting fish in front of them. They wanted nothing to do with that <laughs> thing, even though it was a beautiful gun. But now right. there, uh, there's a lot more information out there, and people are, you know, gradually become more excited about them. And in that video, yeah, I mean, people are 
definitely. Uh, I, I've had like four or five guys in the last, you know, since that video come out, email me asking me if I knew anything about those guns. It's like, <laughs> you saw that video. That's funny. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put that video in the in the show. Yeah, you got to put it's it a, in. Yeah. It's, it's cool, actually. And people, uh, if again, if they're interested, they should check it out. But yeah. uh, well, from that way far end of the spectrum of a gun that many of us will probably never own, is there anything on the other end of the spectrum that is getting you excited at the moment? Something new? Anything? So I think the most interesting thing going on right now in gun making to me is how much quality you can buy. And I don't want to say how little money, but basically, uh, quality has never been more affordable. And yeah. so you've got gun makers like Greeny, you've got um, some of the other Italian makers who are building yeah. really high quality guns for prices that aren't insane, you know? Yeah. And uh, Greeny's, you know, I, like uh, some of those Greeny over and unders, quality wise, they're not that far from uh, a London, you know, quality gun. I mean, you could legitimately buy a green and expect that thing to last your lifetime. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you and you can get yeah, it'll, it will, and uh, you can get it serviced. It's they're beautifully made, you, so you can yeah. spend ten grand on a greenie and get a fabulous gun. You can spend less on a Beretta, and they're fabulous guns. Um, right. Those new, uh, like those Rosini side by sides that are out there now, those uh, Fab Arm side by sides, they're so all yeah. really well made guns. Um, and yeah. so I think the thing is. Is uh so quality a lot of quality is now more affordable than ever. Even those Dixons, those Dickinson things out of Turkey, those yes, are still yes. for the like if a guy just wants to bird hunt, that's a great gun and it's brand new. Yep. It has modern dimensions, modern steel. Um, mm-hmm. You can probably put steel through all of them, so you don't have those concerns. Um, yep. They're replaceable if you you know if if one of them gets wrecked in shipping. There's a tremendous amount of advantages. There's differences, you know those those guns. I haven't come across one that is on par with a top British gun, but you shouldn't expect it to be. The They're not expected to be, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if they can get you 70% of the way there, if I was one of those British mm-hmm. gun makers, my biggest concern would be companies like Garini. Because yeah. Garini can just, I mean, if they can do that for 10000 what could they do for 20000 you know? Right. I don't know. They could probably do something that's on par with a Purdy over and under. You know, yeah. that costs $75,000. Um, so that's what I think. And, and those new, uh, what are those new RFN things? I saw those, I was checking out the website. I think that's that whole movement of guys being able to get a really nice new gun and not have to spend mm-hmm. a fortune, especially side-by-sides, because the side-by-side market was, you've been able to get good OUs, uh, but yes. side-by-sides now, um, you know, yeah, the selection there was way, way different than, like you said, you could go buy a Beretta, you could go buy a Garini, but the side-by-side market was a different story. Yeah, it was pretty dead. Um, yeah. And then the RBLs came out, and then like yep. those Dickinson, Smith & Wesson, those kind of things started coming out. Yep, I had one of those. Yeah, I mean, and that was, that was like the wave of, you know, the quality is, uh, keeps improving. Um, in a lot of ways, the prices are still very fair. You know, and like I said in that article that I was talking to a guy and he said their company would never make uh, side-by-sides because side-by-sides were dead. Dead, yeah. And that was two years ago, and now they they just came out with a side-by-side. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good news for side-by-side fans. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of interest. <laughs> There's more interest in them now than ever before. Yeah. Just, you know, that's good to see. So. Yeah. 
All right, man. Well, it was great to catch up with you. Uh, this will not be the last time we have you on the podcast. I appreciate it. Where can folks go? Are you still putting out weekly Good Gun Alerts? Oh, yeah. I still put out once a week on my blog. I put out Good Gun Alerts okay. on Sundays. I put those up on my blog. Uh, I post other stuff during the week. Uh, so dogsanddoubles.com. Um, yep. I'm on Instagram at dogsanddoubles. I put up pictures. I'm going to be doing more once I get the new dog. I got to okay. do more dogs. Most of my stuff is doubles. Yeah, <laughs> heavy on the doubles lately. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> yeah, they're still going out to go, go. So go to dogsanddoubles.com and follow me on Instagram. I need more followers. I want to get right, to man. the big leagues like Project Upline. <laughs> yeah, well, I think people know when they need your expertise, they know how to find you. Yeah, and they can always reach out to me if you want to talk yeah. about buying stuff. You want to talk about the best ways to sell stuff. Yeah, I get emails from guys all the time uh, and do what I can to help them. So. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time, Greg, and thanks for dropping some knowledge on me and the Project sure, Open listeners. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Happy to do it. All right. See you later, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, Electronic Shooters Protection, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.